Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. This morning, I um, would like for us to turn in your copy of God's Word to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Um, we're taking a, a break this week, mostly because I wasn't able to do any kind of real preparation before <laughs> maybe Thursday this week, and uh, it just ran out of time. So, But I was able to do some thinking on this topic while I was recovering from this uh, little COVID circus that I've been uh, a part of for the last uh, 10 days. I wasn't feeling uh, up to a lot of brain-intensive activity, but um, I was able to follow a bit more news than I'm used to keeping up with, which uh, I have to admit did not do a lot to buoy my spirit. <clears throat> In fact, the more information that I saw that flashed across my screen, the more, uh, the more depressing life seemed to be. Reports of pervasive corruption, the shameless celebration of immorality and perversion uh, during Pride Month now, apparently it's a month long, stories of untimely deaths, senseless violence, um, perhaps I guess in a way that I haven't felt in a while, there was a palpable sense of, man, the world is swirling down the drain. I was particularly struck by how prophetic Moses' words were are in Psalm 90, and later on in verses 9 and 10, he says, For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due strength, 80 years. Yet their pride, what, the thing that, that is their glory, is but labor, he says, and sorrow. For soon it is gone, and we fly away. For I guess for all of our cultural, political, and, and technological advancements, the world, I think, is just as much a flaming wreckage uh, as it was 3,400 years ago when Moses was wandering through the wilderness with the Israelites, uh, just as much now as it was then. And it made me think about how it can all be over just like that. A microscopic virus, a stray bullet, a distracted driver crossing the median, um, and all of a sudden our lives are turned completely upside down. Life is short, life is fleeting, uh, and the length of our days is unknown and uncertain. This is the one of, one of the predominant themes of the book of Ecclesiastes. If you look at chapter 1 and verse 2, he begins right out of the gate by saying, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And this term vanity, hevel, has the idea of breath, fleeting. He says, uh, life, is, life is like a breath. Life is um, here today, and it is gone tomorrow. And so frequently does Solomon refer to this term vanity in the book, in the, that in some ways that's all people know the book for, that they think it's just all about that. But that's actually, actually not the theme of the book. Besides the constant drumbeat that Life is vanity. Solomon also tells us it's impossible for any of us to know with any certainty how much time the Lord has allotted for us here on earth. Uh, if you look at chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, he says there, he says, I saw that under the sun that the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to the men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, man does not know his time, like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time, 
when it suddenly falls on them. In other words, calamity, like a fish caught in a net, he says, or like a bird trapped in a snare, it can befall us at any time. It doesn't matter who you are or what you do. As my, um, the first pastor that the church that I was a part of when I was saved as, as a young man in my 20s, uh, my pastor used to always say, you're just one little teeny broken blood vessel in your brain away from eternity all the time. And that, was, uh, that stuck with me. Life is short and fleeting, and the length of our days is indeed uncertain. Does that mean then that all of the details of our lives are haphazard? Um, that the comings and goings of life are just left to some kind of impersonal fate or um, destiny? Is the world just sort of careening out of control then, like, like, uh, like a train gone off the tracks to some kind of uncertain destination? Obviously, if you know the Word of God, you know that that's not the case at all. Nothing could be further from the truth. Um, I mean, what you learn in Ecclesiastes is you emerge from chapters 1 and 2, which um, you could call the valley of vanity, uh, and set your feet squarely then in chapter 3 on the providential plains, what you learn is that uh, in these opening 15 verses of chapter 3 is that everything, absolutely everything from the most far-reaching plans to the smallest details of life are under the sovereign control of God. Life is not out of control. The reason it feels that way is because life is under a curse, and Genesis 3 has made that clear. It is in no way out of control. And in chapter uh, 3, verses 1 to 15, Solomon teaches the reader poetically and powerfully that everything under the sun is traceable back to its ultimate source, which is the all-encompassing plan of our all-powerful God. In verse 1, he says, There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. So we see God's providence just stated out in the open. He says there is an appointed time that is it's fixed. The term speaks of a definite, purposeful, specific time for everything. The events of your life, the events of my life are not haphazard. They are not left to chance or destiny or fate. They are appointed by God, and God is bringing all things to pass according to his will. This is foundational to our understanding of who God is. We can never lose sight of that. God, not you and I, God is the ultimate one who is ordering and directing all the specifics of our lives. God is preserving. God is operating. God is governing all things in the universe to his appointed end. This is what we mean when we speak about God's providence, the theme of God's providence. Time is in God's hands. And to illustrate that, this broad, this comprehensive providence of God over all the affairs of our life, the preacher, as he calls himself here, uses thir- uh, 14 different contrasts by way of um, kind of a poetic meter that to show God providentially directs all the seasons of our lives. And so after stating in verse 1 that, that, God's, that he is uh, God's providence is stated in verse 1, in verses 2 to 8, he, we see it surveyed in a, in a, in a very uh, in a memorable way. Of course, this has been put to music, and we, we kind of know these verses well. 
Um, but he's surveying the all-encompassing dynamic of God's providential control of our lives. It encompasses beginnings and endings in verse 2, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. So beginnings and endings. It encompasses even the things we normally attribute to being in under, under our control. Um, things like the administration of justice and healing someone who's been injured. That's what you see in verse 3 when he says a time to kill and a time to heal as the idea of sewing up. A time to tear down and a time to build up. It encompasses things like emotions and the usefulness of objects in one situation and not another and the mundane matters of life. That's what you see in verses 4 to 7. And then God's providence even encompasses both individual expressions of love and hate and the collective expressions of those attitudes, love and hate, in war and peace in verse 8. A time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Solomon's describing the full spectrum of human experience in these verses. Life is complex. It's full of good times, it's full of bad times, and it's full of all the times in between. And Solomon wants us to understand that all the seasons of life are orchestrated by the sovereign hand of God and that you and I are not marking them on our stopwatch. God is. And so he moves from God's providence surveyed in verses 2 to 8 to his providence summarized in verses 9 to 15. Solomon draws it all, his thoughts, to a summary uh, conclusion in verses 9 to 15, presenting both a challenge to us as the reader and a comfort. The challenge is this in verse 11, will you embrace not having all the answers and simply receive what God has given you as a gift? He says he has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in man's heart, in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. See, God doesn't, uh, doesn't see like we see. He has complete knowledge. He has complete power. He has complete control. God stands outside of time. But we, on the other hand, we have a limited knowledge and a limited power and a limited control. And so, Though we want to be able to see and control everything in the big picture, eternity, he says, is, is on our heart, yet, nevertheless, we can't. So the question is, then how shall we live? How shall we live? And he gives us that answer in verses 12 and 13. He says, I know that there is nothing better for them <clears throat> to, than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, it is the gift of God. See, our job, our job is not to control all the, the different things that are going on in the universe but, or, to lever, or to try and leverage those things for lasting gain. That's, what that, uh, that's that contrast between profit or gain and vanity. That's what's fleeting and what, what disappears. That's that theme that you see throughout the whole book. It's not our job to control or leverage the world for lasting gain, but to receive it, whatever God gives us, as a gift and be satisfied. We can trust the timeless God with the times of our lives because he is who he is. And so that's the challenge. The comfort comes then in verses 14 and 15, and, he, and that is this, I know that everything God does will remain forever, and there is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it, for God has so worked that men should fear him. 
So again, he reaffirms that God exercises sovereign control over everything, and he does that so that, this is the reason, we would fear him. Not in cowering, like, fear, but as in awe, as in trust, as in placing our faith in him, and, of course, in his son, Jesus Christ. And we can trust him, and we can take comfort in the midst of all the challenges and the disappointments and the missed opportunities and even the outright evil that we are seeing in the world and bear witness to and experience because verse 15 says, God seeks what has passed away. That which has been already and that which will be has already been, but God seeks what has passed away. That's a really enigmatic little phrase there. The picture, though, is straightforward. It is a picture of God fetching back all the events of our lives at the end of time and taking everything back and holding everyone to account. Every single transgression of God's law, every single sinful action that has stained this beautiful world, every single violation of God's image bearers, Solomon reminds us, will be answerable to God. That is what verse 15 is, is communicating. There is a day coming when God will right every wrong. And so we can trust God, with whatever he brings into our lives, we can rejoice and we can live for God and we can glorify him no matter what. Now, in taking and in, in talking about all of God's meticulous sovereignty, the way the preacher does here in these opening 15 verses, the inevitable question arises, and this is what this is all by way of introduction to our text this morning. What about evil? Right? If God is in control of everything, what about evil? How are we to understand sin and evil in this world around us if God is directing everything after the counsel of his will? Because we know he's all good. God is the, the epitome, the essence of goodness in his being. We know that God is all powerful. So how are we to think about all the evil we see happening in us, <clears throat> to us and around us in the world? Because what we would seem to see with our eyes doesn't match up with what the scriptures are telling us. And it seems to contradict that God is in complete control. When I look around, as I did this week, watching some of the news and gathering up some of the current events that were going on, I don't see a God who's in control. It seems like he's very much lost control. And the things are spiraling toward chaos. So how are we to think about evil and God's providential control. And Solomon, being the wisest man who ever lived, addresses that in verse, uh, verses 16 to 22 and then into chapter 4. And um, the preacher in these uh, verses, 16, chapter 3, verse 16, to chapter 4, verse 16, reveals and responds to six concerns he sees in the world that might tempt you and I to question God's, God's providential control. It's almost as if the, 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 the preacher anticipates the blowback that he's going to get from what he said in verses 1 to 15. And so he's trying to get out in front of it in order to address the elephants in the room. And there are six ele elephants uh, that he addresses between chapter 3, verse 16, and chapter 4, verse 16. And we're not going to tackle all of them. We're just going to look at two this morning, but they're big ones. And they are injustice 
and death. How are we to think about God's providential control in light of injustice and death? And so that's kind of our outline. What about injustice? That's the first part of, of Solomon's response here. Uh, this first elephant in the room that he's going to address. And he starts in verse 16. He says, Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. What he says there in verse 16 follows right on the heels of the preceding verses. It's all connected. It all goes together in terms of the theme that he's addressing. And and it's even connected to the structure of the text itself. He says in verse 15, he points out that God fetches back the past, seeking what has passed by. But furthermore, he says, or still yet, here's what I see. See, in the preceding section, he acknowledges God's in control of everything. God is directing all things according to the counsel of his will. But here's what he sees happening all around him. In the place of justice, there is wickedness. In the place of righteousness, there is wickedness. What is he talking about here? Well, the place of justice is just what you would think. It's the place where justice is rendered out in the judicial proceedings of the day, basically in the court of law. In the place of righteousness refers to those places where you might expect to find upright character. Um, in administration of public affairs, civic leadership, those kinds of things. Solomon says, in those two places where you would most expect to find right and wrong held forth, he says, you know, to see where good is called good and evil is called evil, lo and behold, you find wickedness. You find evil. He clearly has some specific examples in mind because he says, I've seen it with my own eyes. But Again, he's, a, he's speaking about it in a general way, and I think that's intentional because it is common to every time and it is common to every era. Where justice should prevail, where integrity and upright character should shine brightest, instead, wickedness seems to hold court. Injustice abounds. Wickedness because it's, it's every man's default spiritual condition has a way of worming its way into even the halls of justice. And that presents a problem. You say God's in control of everything. You say all our times are in his hand. You say he's working all things after the counsel of his will. Then why are murderers acquitted on legal technicalities? Or why do executives engage in fraud and get a, a slap on the wrist? Why do government officials get to line their pockets and theirs of their families through conflicts of interest? Why, why are foster children placed back in dangerous and abusive home environments? Why do activist judges get to redefine marriage or gender? Why are mothers allowed to murder unborn children? Why are parents always at the back of the line when it comes to making life-altering decisions that affect their children's well-being. Life just doesn't seem very fair. This is so much injustice. There's so much injustice in the world. It's amazing to me how each of us is hardwired toward justice. You don't have to teach anybody the, the concept of justice. Every toddler on the planet understands justice, right? Just take something they're holding away from them. 
And immediately you will see the, 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 the rage of justice emerge from their soul. It's, you know, that's mine. That's not fair. We are born into this world with a gavel in our hands. And uh, there's a reason I think the vast majority over the last maybe 25, 30 years, the vast majority of dramatic television programming has been what? Crime dramas, right? It's like law and order, those kinds of shows where the good guys get the last laugh and uh, the bad guys are put away. And the, you know, we love to see justice. We, 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 it's entertainment for us because it satisfies that innate understanding of our hearts. <clears throat> but that is not the world we live in. That is not the world we live in. In the world we live in, many times the bad guy gets away with it and the innocent are punished. It was true, uh, it's true in our day, and it was true in Isaiah's day as well. He says it in chapter 10, in uh, Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, speaking to the people of Israel, he says, Woe to those who enact evil statutes, to those who constantly record unjust decisions, so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights, so that widows may be their spoil and that they may plunder the orphans. Or in Amos, the prophet Amos, again speaking against Israel, God rails against Israel, says those who turn justice, he's against those, he, he rails against those who turn justice into wormwood and cast righteousness down to the earth. Those, he says, they hate him who reproves in the gate. This is obviously someone who's, who's taking a stand for what's right and good. And they abhor him who speaks with integrity. Later on in chapter 5, he says, I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. These people who were the most vulnerable were left to fend for themselves and be taken advantage of. I mean, it was just as common then as it is now, as it has been through all of time. So what is Solomon's response to this elephant in the room? I mean, we we know God's in control. He's established that point. And yet, when we look around, it just doesn't seem like that. How are we to think about this? And for that, Solomon points us to the future. You go back to the text in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 17. This is his response. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man. For a time, for every matter, and for every deed is there. The preacher reflects on earthly injustice in light of God's future divine judgment. God's inactivity with regard to earthly injustice should not be thought of as God conceding defeat to wickedness. We have to remember that. God is not, uh, Satan is, and de- demons are not the equal and opposite force of good in the world. They are not equal to God. And he is not some equal opponent on the stage of human history. God will, in the future, execute perfect judgment. That's what verse 17 is pointing to. Every wrong will be made right. And, and, and that's what's bound up in this term, to judge. It's not just that God is going to render the verdict. God will also execute the sentence. God won't just sort out the right guys, the good guys from the bad guys, or the right from wrong. He will render to each one according to their deeds. Abraham said it in 
Genesis 18, verse 25, he says, Far be it from you, speaking of God, will not the judge of the earth deal justly? I mean, the obvious answer to that question is, it's a rhetorical question, is yes, he will. He will deal justly. Wronging the innocent and clearing the guilty is a dangerous business. But one day, everyone who practices that kind of wickedness will one day face the judge of all judges in that final judgment. On a practical level, understanding that God is in control and that injustice will not go unpunished should um, really tips us into two things. One, first, it keeps us from becoming embittered and seeking to take justice into our own hands. This is important. We just memorized Romans 12, but you remember in verse 19, it says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You see, as Christians, we're in the business of leaving room. (laughs) That's how we need to think about our responsibilities in the world. It is not our job to execute justice. We're in the business of leaving room. For who? For God. And so we can trust him with those things. He will execute justice. So the first thing this, this reality does is it allows us the space to leave the room. And secondly, it should cause us to flee to Christ for refuge. In thinking about this, when we're examined, you and I are examined in that final day. Romans 3 tells us that we will all be found guilty. We will all be found guilty. Only those who have turned from their sin and hidden themselves in the righteousness of Christ by faith will ever be counted righteous and rescued from God's coming judgment. We can be justified in his sight. We can be declared righteous, but we cannot do that on our own efforts. We cannot do that by our own religious performances. We, cannot, uh, we, don't, in, we don't receive that as a heritage from our parents. We can be declared righteous, the scripture makes clear, only by faith in Jesus that rests entirely on his life, his death, and his resurrection. So, so really, this reality of God's providential control and his future judgment should cause every sinner to run to the refuge of Jesus Christ. So when we're tempted to ask, God, where were you when injustice happens? Solomon's response is to look in faith to the one who judges righteously. But there's a second concern. There's a second elephant in the room that Solomon addresses here in verses 18 to 22 that might cause you and I to question God's providential control of all things, and that is, what about death? What about death? Death, chapter 2, verse 16, says is the great leveler. It's the great leveler. Wise and foolish all die. Rich and poor all die. Mighty and humble all die. We're born, we live, and we die. Moreover, not only do we all die, but some die young. Some die before they hardly have a chance at life at all. It's brutal. And death, of course, was not part of God's design from the outset. Initially, God created everything good, and there was no sin, and there was no death. Adam and Eve had fellowship with God. Man had every opportunity in front of him. Every blessing that could possibly be his belonged to him. But they sinned, and they rebelled. And, of course, 
We know how that story unfolds. Romans 5, verse 12, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Not only was man subject to death, but the physical creation itself has been subjected to corruption. We see that in Romans 8. We know that those verses well. So death is really a hideous distortion of God's design. It is, it is not God's initial design for the world. And Solomon reflects on the inevitability and the brutality of death in this fallen world, and he comes to this conclusion that man's end is in many ways the same as the animal's. Look at verse 18. He says, I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see what they are, that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage, advantage or gain or profit for man over beast, for all is breath. It's all vanity. We don't like to think about death. We do everything in our power to suppress the knowledge and realization of our demise, but um, it's a fantasy. It's really a fantasy, and, and, and we understand that. Psalm 49, turn, turn to Psalm 49 for a second, because uh, the psalmist there it picks up this reality that death is inevitable. And we need to consider it. We need to think about it. In Psalm 49 and verse 7, it says, No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. It's basically saying man should stop trying to pretend like he's not mortal. For he sees that even wise men die, and the stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names, but man and his pomp will not endure. And here he says exactly what Solomon said, but he is like the beasts that perish. We like to think of ourselves as gods. We like to think that we're not going to... uh, ever exit this world, but the harsh reality is that we're, we're all mortal, just like the animals. You remember Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he, he thought he was uh, all that, and, uh, and God humbled him. Daniel 4, verse uh, 31, and while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be like the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And it says immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and became began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. God, by way of a supernatural judgment, humbled and refined Nebuchadnezzar and forced him to recognize that God is the sovereign of the universe and that his fate was no different than the beast by turning him essentially into a beast. Which takes us back to the text in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. You could paraphrase verse 19 this way. 
he says, basically says man dies like a dog. There's an emphasis here on the similarity to our fate. He says they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over all of it. In verse 20, he says, all go to the same place. All came from the dust. All return to the dust. Some look at death and might be tempted to question God's providential direction, but Solomon wants us to do the exact opposite. The reality and inevitability of death is meant to refine and to test us so that we would come to the conclusion that we are creatures and that God is the creator. Our lives are short, they are fleeting, and there is no lasting gain to be found under the sun. And so we need to recognize who we are before Almighty God. So is that it? We just live and die and turn back into the dust like animals? That's not it at all. There are similarities to us as to animals, but there are differences. And there's one major difference in verse 21. He says, who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast ascends downward to the earth. And depending on your translation, um, that may look like a question. It is in the NAS, and I don't think it's particularly helpful because there's no question in the original language. You can determine an interrogative sentence very easily in Hebrew, and this is no, there is nothing in this sentence contextually that would, uh, or, or grammatically that would lead you to Translate this as a question. I have no idea why this is a question. It's a statement. And you can paraphrase the statement this way. He says, there are not many who take to heart. That's what the idea of who knows. There are not many who take to heart as they ought the fact that the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes downward to the earth. So he's making a point here that while man is like the beasts in some ways and that his, breath, his life is fleeting and that we all die, on the other hand, the preacher says it here with a certain measure of sadness. Perhaps that's why it's phrased as a question, that it's very hard to understand if you're just reading it. But he, there's a sense of, like, like, there aren't many who consider the opposite truth, that the spirit of man ascends to God and will stand in judgment before him. Man is a never-dying soul. We are not like the animals. We stand accountable before the living God when life ends. Animals, when they die, they turn back to dust, and they're done. So I'm sorry, your pet hamster nugget will not be in heaven. This is, this is not Solomon, verse 21, is, is not, this is not Solomon shrugging his shoulders wondering, I wonder what happens when we die. Maybe we go up, maybe we go down. No, he just told us two times in the preceding verses that God will judge. He saw it in verse 15, you saw it in verse 17. So that makes no sense. There's no, there's no way that he is questioning or, or uncertain of what happens. Even in chapter 12, verse 7, he says, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit of man will return to God who gave it. So there's no question in Solomon's mind what happens to man's soul. There is no doubt whatsoever that we will stand before God. What he's drawing attention to is the fact that so few stop to think about it. That is the point. When you die, when I die, our soul will return to God and you and I will stand before him. We will stand before him. 
Now, this has very practical consequences for how we live. First, it keeps our pride where it needs to be, in check. When we remember that we are, in many ways, not so different than the beasts of the field, in terms of our frailty, in terms of our mortality, that keeps us from thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. This will also do a great job of destroying any hero worship that you may be tempted to toward others. They're all going to die. We're all going to die. And if, even if that person is the greatest person you've ever met and you think they just walk on water, you have to remember that they're just a never-dying soul, just like you and me, and they will one day stand in judgment before God. We are not God. So it keeps our pride in check. And the second thing that it does, practically speaking, is it keeps us on the straight and narrow. Right? Knowing that there is a then before Almighty God impacts how we live in the present. It stirs us up to do good, as Solomon says in chapter 3, verse 12. There's nothing better for them than to do good. This is to walk in righteousness. So it has the idea, it stirs us up to do good, and it prompts us, as Solomon says in the end of the chapter, at the end of the book, excuse me, in chapter 12, verses 13 to 14, to fear God and to keep his commandments. Again, that fearing God is an Old Testament way of saying having faith toward God and of course, faith works, and so faith keeps the commandments of God. Not perfectly, but, but with an attitude of true, genuine desire to please God that rises out of that faith in him. And so what you see in these verses, what you see here, is, uh, is Solomon addressing the elephant in the room. What, what about death? God, where were you when, when death happened? In verse 22, it reminds us how we're to live now in light of God's providential control of everything. Despite injustice, despite the brevity of life, we can still face each day with joy and with contentment, which is hard to do when you stop and think about death and when you stop to think about injustice and all the evil in the world. There's not a lot to be joyful about, at least on the face of it. But that's not the takeaway from this. That's, this is not meant to be a depressing message. This is meant to drive us to God and to leave us with... This is a book, Ecclesiastes is a book that is, was read in the Hebrew calendar as a celebration. You know, they have, they'd read certain books at certain seasons. They have a very fixed kind of calendar, right, in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes was read when there was a time of celebration, which just seems weird because it's such a oftentimes it's held as this very depressing book. But it's not when you understand the theme of the book is this, life is a gift, not gain. That is the theme of the book. And so he, he tells us how to think about this, and he does this throughout. As you, as you read through this book, you'll see him stop, and then he'll just kind of give you, okay, how, here's how we're to think about this. And that's what he does in verse 22. I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot, for who will bring him to see what will occur after him? We are to live each day with joy and contentment and an unswerving trust in God. 
This is the thesis of the book. Life under the sun is a gift. It's a blessing. It's a joy. It is not anything more than that. It is not gain. It's not going to give you something that will last forever. And it's important to note that Solomon is not advocating here, as he does in other places in the book, for greedy consumption, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. That is not the theme. That is not what he's saying. What he's advocating for is a patient and joyful embrace of daily life as it comes to us as a gift from God. It's, a, it's not a life centered on self, right? That selfish indulgence, but a life that is turned outward towards God and others and asking what is the good that God wants me to do in this situation and then walking in it. We're to live life not in the hope of gaining some advantage over the rest of creation, which we will ultimately, we all share the same breath. We're all going to die just like the animals. We're not going to gain anything over anybody else. It's, and so Solomon says it's basically not worth the effort. And he'll go on to describe that and later on in chapter 4 and even into chapter 5 as he explains men who you know, oppress one another and, and try and tear down and climb over each other. He says, it's all vanity. It's all vanity. We are not to try and gain an advantage over others, but simply to find joy in life and rejoice that God, what, in what God has given us and recognize that that is the, the joy and the life that he's given us. And that's the reward. The reward is the life itself the joy that we have in it. Because when the dust settles, he says, and when we arrive out of breath at the end of the journey, that's all that remains. There's nothing that will go on after us. I was thinking this week, it made me think of a, of a song. I wouldn't call it a hymn per se, but it's a song written. And uh, this song captures this um, the lyrics capture this um, interplay between man who sees injustice in the world and God who responds. And he says this, it goes like this. The man says, God, I do not understand this world. Everything is dying and broken. Why do I see nothing but suffering? God, I'm asking, could this be your plan? Sin has taken hold of this whole land. Will you not say anything else to me in you know, speaking back to God? And God's response is as follows. He said, where were you the day that I measured and sunk the, and the banks and stretched the line over all the earth and carved out its cornerstone? Where were you the day that I spoke and told the sun to split the night open and calm the morning dawn with its light to show? Who shut in the ocean with stone doors, marked the reach of tides on those new shores, hung the day the waves rose and first break, broke forth? Have you seen the springs of that great sea, walked to the caverns carved in the black deep, through the gates of darkness there on its floor? Have you seen the armory I hold, snow and hail, stacked up in silos for the times of trouble and war and strife? Can you raise your voice to the storm cloud? Would the thunder answer and ring out? 
Does the lightning ask you where it should strike? Who has cleft the channels for torrents, rain to sprout the desert with forests in the wilderness that my hand has built? Can you hunt the prey for young lions? Can you loose the bands of Orion? In this, is this whole world bending beneath your will? To which the man responds, I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. Although I had no right to ask, my God knelt and answered me. You say, that sounds familiar. Where have I heard that? It's Job. It is a paraphrase of Job 38 to 42. The man is Job, and God is responding and explaining to him exactly what it is. He had a question for God. Where were you when? And God's response is, in a sense, our text. The answer is explained in the text. God is God and we are not. And we can trust him. And we can look to him. And we can enjoy the good things God's given us in this life. They come from him, they're for him, and we receive them every day. You say, well, that's not the answer I wanted to hear. <laughs> and that's the answer God condescends to give us. And we need to embrace it. And that is the theme of the book. And so as you look out in the world and you see things kind of, you see the wheels coming off, we need to come back. We need to come back to Ecclesiastes and recognize, first of all, this has always been the case. This, this always, these things have always happened. And secondly, God is God, and we are not. We can trust him. We receive what good things he gives us from his hand. Sometimes those are more than others. Sometimes it's hard to see what those good things are. But there's always something. And we can trust him, and we can look to him, and we can rejoice in those things, and realize we can't expect more out of life than life can give us. We look to him, and we trust him above all. And in the end, the things that we try and uh, grab onto in this world, it won't matter, because as we, as we were taught several weeks ago here, at least it seems like several weeks to me, well, we're looking to that reward. We're looking to God himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you would humble yourself to draw us to you. We thank you that you would condescend, as it were, to bend down and to answer us when we have the audacity to ask the question, God, where were you when? We understand there's injustice in the world, Lord. We understand there's death and suffering. There is oppression. There is um, all the things that we grab onto. They seem to just slip away. Uh, but we understand at the end of the day that you are the righteous judge, all that has passed by, you will gather up, you will right every wrong. Lord, help us to be humble, help us to walk circumspectly with you. Lord, if there's any here this morning that haven't placed their faith in you, that don't live in fear and awe of you and seek to keep your commandments because they have trusted in your son, Jesus Christ, we pray that you would draw hearts to you. And Lord, for those who have, may we be reminded that you are the creator, God, and you made us from knit us together as we learned from, from our mother's womb. 
and you will you have appointed the number of days for our lives, and when those days are up, they're up. So help us to live for you now and every day in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.